0: Hello everyone and welcome to Equals and a happy new year from us. This is Nabil.
1: Hi guys, this is Nadia. We are excited to be back in 2023 and we are thrilled today to be welcoming the one and only Professor Joseph Stiglitz. Uh, Nabil, it is a busy, busy week for Oxfam, drawing attention to the extreme inequality we're seeing today as the world's richest are descending into Davos for the World Economic Forum.
0: Yes, absolutely. The festival of wealth, that is Davos, is back. Although if you look at the pictures, the snow is a little missing, and that's another story Mm. unto itself. But look, our new data out this week, it shows that the 1% have captured nearly twice as much wealth as the rest of us, and 99% of us combined at the start of this decade. And that's extraordinary when you think about it. You can almost imagine a sign outside Davos that reads, welcome to the new roaring 20s.
1: Gosh. And I mean, what's what's just as alarming is how this extreme wealth that you just referenced and extreme poverty are rising at the same time. And that's happening for the first time in 25 years. I mean, we're seeing countries struggling with debt, with climate, with so many crises. And then at the same time, the rich are getting richer.
0: Absolutely. And look, today's episode gets us into the state of inequality right across the globe. And there's literally nobody better to do that with than, than Joe Stiglitz.
1: That's true. I mean, he is the guru on inequality, Nobel laureate, leader on so, so many of the important issues of our day. I would say he's an influencer of influencers.
0: Uh, There's a life goal there, influencer of influencers. Nice, nice (laughs) phrase, Nadia. (laughs) But talk to someone who doesn't need an introduction. And I think people will just want to hear what he has to say.
1: That's true. Okay, let's get on with it. Um but just before we do, I do notice that you just you keep saying Joe. Um, and to me he's Professor Stiglitz. So what are we going with? Joe or uh, Prof. Stiglitz?
0: I mean he is Professor Stiglitz, but I, I think we can call him Joe. Uh, okay. <laughs> let's get to it. Okay, let's do it. Joe, a very, very warm welcome onto Oxfam's Equals podcast. It's so great to have you on, knowing your work and I'm sure you get this a lot, but just even walking into this podcast as I walked past my bookcase... I saw globalization and its discontents. I think the book that got me into all of this. I saw Free Fall, Price of Inequality. Um, so it's always great to someone who's who's taught us all so much. Thank you. Nice to be here,
1: Joe. I- I'm equally just so excited to to have this conversation and um, and really grateful that you're making the time. I want to get right into it um, and ask about inequality because that's the that's the topic of the day and and on the state of economic inequality. That's what I want to ask about. Oxfam's just put out our Davos report. And again, we see these shocking figures on wealth accumulation. There's been soaring increases in food and energy prices. And I wonder... From your perspective, how serious is the state of economic inequality? Well, first,
2: let me say, uh, I always look forward to your annual report. Uh, You put things so uh, uh, viscerally. I remember one of the earlier reports uh, you talked about uh, you could put uh, half the wealth of the world in, in a bus. And then a couple of years later, uh, you said, well, you don't need a bus. You can have a minivan. Well, uh, what's happened since uh, COVID-19 has been uh, extraordinary. Um, You know, the the COVID-19 both uh, exposed global inequalities uh, and exacerbated them. And uh, your inequality report focuses on the top. And, uh, you know, in a period where... So many people found life so difficult uh, with uh, losing their jobs. um, uh, uh, Now, in the post-pandemic era, dealing with inflation, food prices, oil prices going up. uh, It is shocking how uh, many people and how our rich corporations have made off bike bandits. Uh, the, the increase in wealth is uh, just phenomenal. Uh, a couple of numbers from your report, uh, the richest 1% grabbed nearly two-thirds of all new wealth uh, worth $42 trillion created since 2020, almost twice as much money as the bottom 99 percent of the world's population so that is uh you know just an astounding number so every time i read one of these reports uh you know i i think well clearly uh uh things have to get better but uh the pandemic and the post-pandemic uh world has just made things worse um yeah example that i find most outrageous was uh while so many uh around the world were facing high oil prices the oil companies and gas companies were raking in tens of billions of dollars uh, that they were paying uh in share buybacks and uh one-time dividends and so forth uh when uh proposals were made to maybe share the wealth uh, with a tax on these windfall gains. Uh, they hadn't done anything to deserve it. Uh, Putin did. Right. <laughs> if we were, the, the source of, the, of that particular uh, profit was Putin's war in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would call that war profiteering. Yeah. And in the old days, you used to execute those who engaged in war profiteering. But when uh, it was proposed that there would be a windfall profits tax just on the extra tax, the head of Exxon said no way and fought against it.
0: Yeah, you're you're so right, Joe. And look, I have to ask you, Joe, here as well in this moment, right? You know, I remember that feeling after the global financial crash. I remember you writing of the 1% by the 1% for the 1% for Vanity Fair, which was, which was you know, a, a real moment in itself. And, you know, how do you feel this moment right now compares to that? There are even some talk here in the US, Joe, of some people thinking maybe things are getting a little bit better, actually. How, how do you respond to that?
2: Um, it's a mixed bag, to be frank. You know, there was a moment in 2021, right after Biden uh, took office and... Uh, the American Recovery Act was passed uh, It succeeded in reducing childhood poverty in one year by forty percent or forty to fifty percent uh uh that's phenomenal, something that i've been saying for a long time, inequality is a choice we could have eliminated we could have reduced that childhood poverty by forty four fifty percent anytime we we wanted to we had the money to do it if we'd wanted to but uh took a person like President Biden and it took a moment like the pandemic to get our, our act together. But then the Republicans, uh, the for, even and some of the Democrats, uh, the forces on the other side said, great, let's have more inequality. I mean, I couldn't believe it. And mm. uh, we're putting in jeopardy our future because, you know, children who grow up in poverty are not going to be as productive as. Uh, they're going to be uh, discontent, it's going to uh, have adverse effects on our politics and our society and our economy. Uh, it, it is foolish, I believe, to have so many uh, of our children grow up in poverty. And yet, almost consciously, um, the, those on the, on the right said, we want more childhood poverty to give you one more example yeah um, i've been finding it as uh, amazing that uh, the fed has been saying uh we want to increase the unemployment rate <laughs> you know <Yeah. laughs> uh, you know and then they go on to say paul says it's going to take a lot of pain of course he's not going to be feeling the pain um i know he's going to say it's going to be painful for me to see your pain but it's very different from him uh, experiencing the pain and one of the things that we know it, it seems like a small thing increasing the unemployment rate say from 3.7 percent to 5.1 5.2 5. those seem like just numbers but they're real people and yeah. When you do that, the unemployment rate on, say, marginalized groups, on young African-American, is not going to be 5.1%. It's going to be around 20%. And What does that do to our society?
0: Joe, you mentioned choices here, and one of the choices that we can make to combat extreme inequality is on taxing the ultra-wealthy. And I want to go there because it feels to me that in many respects we've the world's moved on from asking maybe maybe if we should tax the rich to an increasing debate on how much we should tax the rich and the us has such an interesting history here you know the most progressive tax system in the world in the past fdr right to the early 80s top earners you know an average at the top marginal income tax rate above 80% if i was if i was to ask you joe what you know, what's your sense here? What do you think is the right rate to tax the ultra wealthy, specifically billionaires in today's era?
2: I think we have to realize that, uh, to some extent, most of the billionaires have gotten much of their wealth out of luck. Uh, they did something uh, positive, they created something, uh, but there were other people doing similar things. Uh, take Facebook. There was MySpace. Uh, one of them was going to win. It was a lottery. And uh, you can say, well, uh, they came up with a better idea uh, of uh, clicking uh, like. That was a big innovation, but is it worth uh, $50 billion or 150 billion billion or $150 billion? But the, more, uh, the, the real point is, would they have done it? Anyway, if instead of having a hundred billion dollars, they only took home five billion dollars. My view is uh, what drives uh, a lot of this is uh, the drive to create, drive to be successful. And if you took away a large fraction of the wealth uh, that they get beyond five or ten billion dollars, they still would have done it. And what reinforces my view on the fact that we ought to have high tax rates on on the very wealthy is that most of these have not all have uh, gotten at least a fraction of their wealth out of exploitation a variety of kinds of exploitation uh, sometimes it's just uh, exploitation of market power you know Microsoft was accused uh, 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 of uh, Violating competition laws on three continents, Google has been, Amazon has been, uh, and uh, in most cases they've been found guilty. So there is a uh, an unsavory aspect of it. Uh, Some of the billionaires, like Trump, actually uh, are explicitly exploitative, lying, uh, cheating with their contractors, uh, uh, making money out of gambling, gambling addiction, and so forth. Uh, So to me. Uh, The kinds of proposals that have been put forward in the United States by, say, Elizabeth Warren, uh, a wealth tax of of 1 percent or 3 percent over 50 billion uh, or over 5 billion or, you know, those numbers uh, uh, seem to be uh, very reasonable and would would really go a long way to raising revenues that uh could uh alleviate some of our 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 country's problems let me make it clear it's not that we're trying to uh be against success it's really a question of sharing the wealth in ways to make our society function better
0: yeah
1: yeah. And, and Joe, I, I do want to push you on that, you know, just thinking about the the top earners specifically and a top marginal rate. I mean, we have seen it up to 80 percent in the past. Is that realistic today, you know, getting up to, to those kinds of percents?
2: Uh, there have been calculations done by some of the top uh, public finance economists where they carefully look at uh, the trade offs. Uh, you know, you, people at the top might work a little bit less if you tax them more. But on the other hand, our society gains uh, in having a more uh, egalitarian, a more cohesive society. And uh, I think the the general consensus is on labor income uh, that a, a tax rate of 70 uh, percent uh, would clearly uh, be, uh, make sense. Uh, maybe a little higher. Uh, uh, I I I don't uh, want to fine tune it too much. But what we're talking here, though, is more about wealth taxes. Yep. And the irony is that, while, in my view, we should be taxing wealth at a higher rate because much of the wealth is inherited wealth. You know, yeah. the old Walmart's... Uh, inherited their wealth. Uh, uh, One of my friends uh, describes as winning the the sperm lottery. (laughs) 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 They they chose the right parents. Uh, And you say, well, why why should they have have, uh, uh, more wealth? Um, So, uh, I think there's a compelling case that wealth should be taxed at a higher rate, especially at the very top. Uh, And uh, in the United States, uh, if you pass on assets to your children, you can escape capital gains tax totally.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of work to be done on, on capital gains tax. And actually, I, I want to ask you, you know, when we we think about billionaires, we think about a lot of concentration of wealth. We think about the Elon Musks of the world and the Bill Gates of the world. And, and at the same time, there's a huge concentration of wealth. Also in low and middle income countries, right It's not just That's um, right. these these white men in the global north, there is a huge concentration of wealth in, uh, in other countries as well. And so I do want to ask you know, is that also uh, feasible you know and, and we're seeing that, you know these mountains of debt payment, um, accumulating in low and middle income countries. And, and the solution is this drive towards austerity. When, when you have these choked budgets, you know governments are just moving towards austerity, um, obviously pushed for by the elite and then also by the IMF as, as this huge dominant external force. But how much is there as an alternative to austerity? Um, how much scope is there to tax the rich and, and tax wealth in those kinds of countries?
2: Oh, I think there's enormous uh, scope. One of the things that the international community has to do, of course, is uh, close uh, the tax havens. Uh, A lot of the wealth uh, escapes. Um, Big countries, uh, uh, U.S., EU, India, China, if they wanted to uh, have the power really to uh, effectively shut down these and uh, the billionaire you know there's been enormous growth of billionaires in china and in india uh, and those countries if they wanted to could clearly uh make uh the um uh those who who do business in their country uh pay do like we do in the united states we We say that your income is taxed no matter where you make that income. We don't do it perfectly and we ought to do it more, but uh, having global reach is really important and other countries haven't done that. And I think that's an important uh, lesson, but not a surprise, uh, it's a hidden form of corruption. Um, A lot of studies have shown that, that uh, it is political connections that drive a lot of the wealth accumulation in, in developing countries and emerging markets.
1: Right. And um, thinking about how these decisions get made in international spaces, I actually want to move the conversation towards there and towards multilateralism. You were such a, a tremendous force in the discussion on um, on vaccines uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, you were, have worked so much on on international tax reform. And in so many of these multilateral discussions, we've seen poor countries almost literally locked out of the room on decisions. And then at the end of the day, getting a very, very raw deal. And I wonder from your perspective in today's era, I mean, it it blows my mind that we still have such, you know, this, this neo-colonial dynamic almost. Um, How do we shift that dynamic?
2: Uh, That's a really good question. I mean, you're, uh, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, there's been a greater effort, uh, to have what they call inclusive frameworks, uh, on the tax. Uh, but, uh, they're in the room, but not being listened to, uh, the conversations are structured in ways that, uh, the voice of the poor, uh, uh, and the voices of the poor countries are effectively not heard. And you see that in the outcome of the, uh, OECD initiative on, on, on tax reform, uh, Yeah, it, it was, uh, you know, they wouldn't even disclose where, how much extra money the developing countries were going to get. And we know re- why, because those who did preliminary discuss, uh, calculations said they're getting a pittance. Uh, so, um, the question you ask is the right one. How do we, how do we change that? Um, There is a new geopolitics uh, that is emerging. Uh, You know, during the Cold War, there was a kind of rivalry for uh, the hearts and minds of those in the third world. Um, Then uh, at the end of the Cold War uh, in the late 80s, there was that, that competition disappeared we're entering an era of a new Cold War, and we're seeing, uh, in a sense, a failure of of the West. Um, You know, for me, when I look at uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, I find it, you know, so outrageous. And it is a disappointment uh, to me that there hasn't been the kind of support that I would have liked to have seen from developing countries and emerging markets. But I understand their anger. they said, uh, when we were dying with COVID-19, you said, you whore, you wouldn't even allow us to have uh, the intellectual property, share the intellectual property. Um, and you still won't share that intellectual property. Uh, so you're putting your profits of your uh, of Pfizer and Moderna uh, mm-hmm. above our lives. And now there's this war in Europe and we're paying the price of higher food and higher oil prices, and you expect us to support you in this? So I understand that that anger. And then they say, look at, then you conduct your monetary policy in ways that result in our having to pay higher interest rates, our having to pay uh, the dollar, and much of our debt is in dollars, uh, increasing in value. Uh, and then you're telling us we have to have austerity because uh, otherwise we won't be able to pay back our debts. So uh, yeah. I understand that kind of anger, but uh, maybe the answer to your question is the new realities of the new Cold War will uh, force the US and Europe to begin paying more attention to the developing countries and uh, the emerging
0: markets. Profound answer, Joe, and I. I feel we should. I feel we could talk all day about this, and and what you say really relates also to what we hear from, from folks we work with right right across the world. Um, Joe, we could spend all day with you, but conscious of of your time, I want to get to a final question here. And there's there's bleak pictures here right across. You know what we've been discussing today, and and so much that goes on. And if I could just ask you on a personal note, taking a step back from the policies, taking a wider lens on things. You know, you've led the world to address inequality sometimes this fight it does feel quite hard sometimes you want to stay in bed for that bit longer in the morning thinking today's going to be a tough day what what keeps you going Joe to to keep fighting for a more equal world
2: well I I just you know personally I I just can't accept a world with a kind of uh social injustice uh that we see uh I don't think I could sleep at night if I felt I weren't doing what I could do uh, to, uh, help thing you know, help create a, a, a better world. Um, you know, and on the positive side, I think, uh, there has been progress. Uh, uh, sometimes I feel like it's two, two steps forward and then one step back. Uh, you know, we've been criticizing, uh, uh, IMF and austerity, but, um, uh When I wrote Globalization and its discontents, I think things were much worse uh beginning with Strauss-Kahn and Christine lagarde and uh, now uh with uh, Kristalina, uh as the head of the IMF uh there is more focus on inequality uh there's been a recognition that uh, capital controls uh may be uh uh a better way of running capital markets in the the midst of a crisis. Uh, There's uh, a a recognition that austerity uh, hurts uh, and is not the way to promote uh, even paying debts, uh, let alone growth. There are new views on how to deal with uh, uh, technical issues like debt sustainability. The Washington Consensus Framework is no longer consensus, uh, even Mm. within the IMF. Uh, No, I don't want to say it's an unmitigated victory. I said it's two steps forward, (laughs) uh, one step back. Um, And, uh, you know, maybe I'm I'm too much of a student of the Enlightenment where I believe in progress. Uh, Reason progress, if you put the arguments forward, some of the time... Reason works, <laughs> <laughs> uh, as we know. Um, but you know, I, I I come to this from a, a fairly academic perspective. I b- very much believe in Enlightenment values, and I I I have to believe that if we reason together, we get out the facts. Um, the maybe I you might say it's reason plus. Uh, the moral goodness, uh, the empathy yeah. that uh, Adam Smith talked about in the theory of moral sentiments, will lead us uh, in the right direction.
1: Well, on on that note, I am I'm smiling. Uh, you know, during a, a tough week of thinking about the, the state of the world, but I'm smiling at the end of this interview, and uh, and I am hopeful. Joe, this has been such a treat. It it you're so inspiring, energizing as ever. I'm truly grateful that you took the time with us today.
0: Embracing that, embracing that moral goodness, Joe. Thank you so much. Thank you.
1: My goodness, how do we get this man on every single Equals <laughs> episode, right?
0: It was a wonderful interview. We covered a lot of ground. It was sharp. It was powerful. It was humbling. I've got to tell you, Nadia, I was deeply moved by Joe's answer about you know what, what gets him up in the morning every day.
1: I I know, I could tell you were getting emotional there at the end. And I mean, he really is a force. Um, But yeah, I was trying to distill all of what he was saying into, you know, what are the three key messages? And here's what I took away. Number one, inequality is dangerously high, but it's also a policy choice. uh, And so it's not inevitable. You know, just looking at the examples from the U.S. that he was giving. Number two, taxing top earners and their wealth has to be part of the solution to extreme inequality. And thirdly, uh, you know, the, the need to fundamentally shift global power dynamics, uh, and not just for the sake of economics and poverty and inequality, but, but also for the sake of politics and peace.
0: Yeah, I think that's a wonderful three-point summary, Nadia. And look, his point about rich nations as well, crushing countries across the global South one day and then asking their support for the next. You know, there's a dangerous dissonance there that we need to call out. But my yeah. biggest reflection listening to Joe was was perhaps not on something he said, but, but something that I think he embodied and, and has always has. And that's on the moral responsibility of economists. And, you know, when Joe said these aren't just numbers when we're talking about unemployment, these are people. If only more folks across policymaking thought like that. I wonder where we'd be today.
1: Seriously. And I mean, I think we'd be in a very different place. Okay, everyone. Um, Well, we are going to have to wrap up this incredible episode. Thank you for listening. And please, please do share it with friends, with family, with colleagues. Thank you.
0: Yes, let's get the word out there about inequality and what we can do about it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Cheers.